I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. When Wisley curator Matthew Pottage moved to his rented flat in West London, he was subjected to what you might think of as a professional gardener's worst nightmare. A recently concreted over front garden, devoid of life, partnered with a dilapidated back plot, complete with rampant bamboo and rotting picnic tables. And Matt's certainly not alone when it comes to troublesome rental gardening. According to the English Housing Survey, the amount of people renting property has doubled in the past 10 years. That's roughly one in five of us not owning where we live. And in this situation, it can often feel difficult to put a stamp on whatever green space that comes included. That's exactly why Matt wrote his new book, How to Garden When You Rent, which covers everything from keeping your landlord happy to growing plants in the tiniest of crevices. I'm so pleased to say he's joining me on today's show to explain more. Hi, Matt. Hello, Guy. So, Matt, the inspiration for this book really came from transforming your own rented space. Yeah, it started off really with, OK, I've got a bit of an outdoor space, but we're renting, so there's no point doing anything with it. Of course, I had my own little collection of potted plants, as most king gardeners do. So I thought, OK, well, they can sit out there and one day when we buy our own house, I can do something properly with them. And then you continue to gather up plants. And then it kind of struck me that, hang on a minute, the only people staring at this, the only people losing out here are us. It's us. We're looking at it every day and there's this fence falling down. There was a mile a minute, you know, Russian vine climb everywhere and this bamboo that lives between everyone's fences. And it just looked hideous and this rotting picnic table. And then I thought, well, OK, maybe I just get some nice pots to put my plants into to at least they may as well look nice, even though they're just sitting there. One day they'll be hopefully going into a garden I own. And then bit by bit, you know, it just kind of started to gain momentum as it kind of struck me that even though it's a rented space, I can still practice gardening skills. I can still make this gorgeous. This can still contribute to, you know, how the house looks because all the windows look out into it. And actually, why can't we have fun with this? Or why can't I have fun with this? My other half enjoys looking at it. He doesn't lift a finger. But adding a water feature, then one water feature became two. And then that became three water features and a few feature pots. And, and then before you know it, it's like the talking point whenever anybody comes around about how the garden looks. 
And I'm glad we've done something with it because, as you know, Guy, when you're gardening, you learn all the time. You always try new things. You make mistakes. And gardening in the London microclimate is also a little masterclass in itself. It's completely different to when I used to gardening with Wisley Village, which is the coldest place on earth. And it's such a, uh, an interesting space that's almost frost free throughout the year. That's amazing. I imagine your neighbours were, um, well, they must have been quite surprised at the sudden influx of greenery. I know. I, I do wonder how it must look from other, other fences when you look in, because I have a lot and a lot of it's peeping over the tops of the fence. And it's quite an eclectic mix. The volume of bird life we have, I mean, it's really, really staggered me having bird feeders and then having water. And I have been quite relaxed with the ivy on the fences, partly because I don't want to see through into the neighbor's house. It's lovely they're standing washing up at the same time as me, but I don't particularly want to watch them. So the ivy is much thicker on the fences, but it's full of birds. You know, there's blackbird nests in there, there's loads of sparrows. And I challenged myself when I moved in there, I wasn't, you know, I was going to ditch any kind of sprays, any chemicals, any slug pellets, I just didn't want to do that. And of course, you know, if you want Mother Nature to sort your pest problems out or manage them, you've got to provide some habitat, you've got to have some food sources. So I wanted the ivy to be, you know, for the blackbirds to be able to nest in there because I need them to deal with the snails. And as this bigger ecosystem has developed, even though it's such a tiny space, which, you know, I find quite an exciting thing. How does the lease length impact on what people are able to do? The book is very much around short-stay leases, so annual plants, annual flowers, short-lived plants. And then as it goes through the book, the investment goes up, the time invested goes up a bit more, and then you basically get more return on the display and what, on what you're doing. So I think a lot of people like me go in thinking, I'm not sure how long I'll be here, but it probably won't be that long. And if people have that, fine, they can start with some of the annual plants, some of the more easy, achievable, quick ideas. And then maybe as time goes on, they can commit more or do some more of the in-depth projects. But a lot of it is still, even with the longer stays, things like putting up a section of green wall, you can still take that with you when you go, of course, if you so wished. And the obvious thing is that if the lease is short, is that you go for containers. Yeah, and they're easy to transport. I mean, one thing landlords do seem to be quite keen on is paving everything over or decking everything over, which, you know, is a bit tiresome. And obviously, as you know, things always grow better in the open ground. And if you've got some open ground and you can sow annuals, it's, it's not a lot of money and hopefully quite a quick return. But we do talk a lot in the book about pots and what you can do in containers because my three water features are all in containers. You know, nothing's committed to in the ground, I couldn't dig into the ground because it's paved. Containers are so useful when renting. However, buying a bunch of pots can be costly and wasteful. Luckily, there are plenty of ways you can reuse everything from old chairs to packaging to create a varied pot collection. Someone who's passionate about doing just that is Sarah Edwards the designer of a brilliant container garden at last year's RHS Chelsea Flower Show. Her pot used repurposed materials to create a wildlife haven. I remember seeing that very well and having a good chat with the designer. Did you get to see it, Matt? I did, and I love the creativity because I think she had some freestanding container ponds, uh, meadow-like planting in some of the containers and some small trees. It was a brilliant showcase. There's a lot happening in a small space. 
yes, she was very, very clever. She used things called IBCs that are extremely ugly um, (laughs) metal (laughs) crates with a big plastic tank in the middle. And you usually see them lying around farms and factories full of nasty things like sulfuric acid. But she had very, very cleverly cut them into great big containers, into ponds. She turned them into troughs and hanging baskets. She even made furniture out of them. So um, I thought it was a remarkably impressive bit of ingenuity. Mm. Let's hear from Sarah now. So the IBC tank comes with an integrated pallet and a metal cage around it to stop the plastic from getting crushed when it's stacked and transported around. So I unscrewed the cage so that you could take the container out of the cage. I then used an angle grinder to cut the cage down to different heights. So my garden had three different height containers. I used a metal file just to get rid of any rough edges after I'd cut the metal. And then I used a jigsaw to cut the containers down and then I put the containers back in the cage. And I finished them off with some greenhouse glass gasket. So it's a nice little bit of rubber trim. So it just hides the sort of nasty rough edges from where the containers have been cut. And so you end up with this clean, slightly contemporary look. I had, I think, five trees in the garden. So in three containers, I was inspired by the Miyawaki method of growing pocket forests. Mr. Miyawaki is this amazing Japanese botanist and ecologist. He's in his 90s and convention for reforesting areas which have been degraded or deforested or become slightly toxic. He's developed this method for reforesting in a very, very quick time. So traditionally, trees are planted at the recommended distance to allow them to grow to their natural size. And the Miyawaki method pushes all that to side and collects local seeds from local trees It was inspired by the trees which grow in the temple gardens. So they go and collect the seeds from the trees in the local area. They go to a local nursery. They grow all the little saplings till they're two or three years old. And then they incorporate organic matter into the soil to refresh it. And they plant all the saplings very, very densely and closely together. And what happens is that Everything grows because it's been fed by the nutrition they've incorporated into the soil. But it all grows very, very fast. And then it becomes very dense. And then it becomes the survival of the fittest. So the weaker plants will die, the stronger plants will grow bigger. And so you get this natural selection process in the forest. And what would take two to 300 years in the traditional sense of planting a forest can be achieved in 20 to 30 years. It's worked all over the world, whether it's in the tropical countries or more temperate zones like the UK or North America. And they've scaled it down because of the importance of creating these little wildlife-friendly, diverse habitats into the tiny forests, which are done in schoolyards and inner cities and on derelict patches of land. And there's a real movement around the world following the Miyawaki method. Then at Chelsea in the container garden category. Sometimes we're intimidated by large containers in a small space, but the garden itself was four metres wide and three metres deep, so 12 square metres. And of that, 
just under 50% was taken up by the containers. And it did actually create quite a cosy, enclosed, sort of glade-like feel, seating area where, you know, you were immersed under the tree's canopy. Sometimes in small gardens, people make everything small to go in the gardens, thinking it's going to make the space feel bigger. But actually, if you put larger plants and blur the boundaries so you can't see the fences or the walls quite so much, it gives the feeling of a garden being bigger than it actually is. It tricks the mind into thinking that the garden goes beyond the walls. So thinking big in a small space is actually a good way of making your garden feel bigger. Anything that is a vessel could, in theory, become a plant pot or a container. I have two cattle troughs in my garden. So the old galvanised cattle troughs you see kicking around fields, they make really good containers, quite contemporary in their sort of galvanised finish. I actually use them to collect water off my greenhouse and I put pond plants in there so they become little mini water features. But you could equally plant them up and use them as a planter. The old thing you always used to see was the Belfast sinks, which, you know, become little gravel gardens or miniature ponds, tin baths. If you go to reclamation yards now, there's lots and lots of tin baths. Obviously, you see the dollies, the old dolly tins, which Arthur Parkinson's made really popular. But even down to vegetable crates, oil tins, anything that can be cleaned and then have holes drilled in it, you could reuse. I think, unfortunately, the invention of plastics was revolutionary and people treasured them when it first came into existence. And then somehow we've just turned into this throwaway society where nothing is kept for any period of time. Things are designed with built-in obsolescence so they can't be repaired and so I think it's really 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 important that we start looking at buying things which are repairable. Everything will eventually come to the end of its life cycle and instead of just throwing it away just think about how it can be reused. I've seen like Henry Hoover's used as planters, you know, you just have to think creatively and just go, what could I do with this? Pot-based plants can be housed in all sorts of materials, but what can we fill them with and how do we keep them flourishing? So let's begin with the basics. When we're talking about the care of container plants, Matt, what should we be keeping in mind? So I think a decent quality growing uh, medium is quite key. I know you can pick up a grow bag for next to nothing, but try, if you're going to have a good quality plant display, go for, you know, a decent quality, peat-free. Normally multi-purpose is fine, but, you know, a decent quality blended compost. Also, if you're going to be, say, growing bedding plants in it or or even vegetables, you're asking a lot from that growing medium. So mixing some, I always use pelleted chicken manure, I love that, but mixing some kind of slow-release fertiliser. And don't skimp on the size. Bigger is always better with containers. You know, they hold moisture more effectively, you've got more stability, and there's a better root run. And the other thing I'm a fan of with, if you're keeping plants in pots for longer term, and this is something Tiana's worked on before at the RHS, 
is when things are really pot bound, if you can't give it a bigger pot or you don't want to, because you know the pot's as big as it can go in the space, rather than faffing around trying to scrape off the top layer with an old fork and put on a bit of top dressing, pull the whole thing out of the pot, get an old wood saw, chop off the 20% bottom of the root ball, throw in some new compost with new slow-release fertilizer and pop it back in again. And it roots into that and gives a complete refreshed look to the plant. You know, the plant really responds. It's such a good way of keeping the plant sustained in the same pot. That's a very good idea. I didn't realise Tiana, who's the RHS plant physiologist, had been working on that. I've got quite a few containers. I could do that too myself. As you say, it's a lot of work with a sharp stick getting the compost out. And I happen to have quite a lot of old saws that I've worn away to nothing. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, the caveat goes, if something hates root disturbance like Daphne or Ridgeworthia, that's not the thing to be sawing through the root ball, but there's generally most things you can. Now, in your book, you talk about container plants for structure and how they're so important as the bones for a container display. What do you mean by that? You know, if you have quite a small space or you're looking at a pot display 12 months of the year, you want it to have some offer through the winter months. And fine to have herbaceous plants or grasses or things that perform in the summer into autumn. But, I, you know, when I'm looking at my window in January, I still want to see something. I don't want to just see a load of empty pots with gravel on the top or just an expectation of what will be coming in spring. So I've talked quite a bit about having backbone of evergreens. And, you know, again, if you only have a small space, you want to see something year round. So I've focused on some palms, some evergreens, my own backyard, I've got some camellias, some yuccas, some agaves, the pseudopanax I mentioned before. And I mean, I'm a big fan of evergreens and structure, so I generally just have that and lots of different coloured foliage. So in the middle of January, it looks very similar to how it looks in the middle of June. And how do you feel about trees in pots in your garden? Do you have the odd cherry or walnut or, <laughs> or oak or anything like that? I don't in my own garden. I do have a Trachycarpus wagnerianus, which is quite big, which has been in a pot for over 15 years, and that's very happy, and it's huge. And I do talk about trees in pots, but it's about having the right tree in a pot, something fairly slow-growing, something that's not too vigorous. So, you know, something like a strawberry tree, which is slow-growing and well-behaved, can live for years in a pot, whereas you wouldn't put something like a silver birch in there that can grow a metre a year, would suck up water really quickly and then probably blow over. So... A slow-growing tree in a pot is great and, you know, that is the kind of thing that you could then take with you and then one day plant into the ground. You don't want the tree to look completely stressed the whole time it's in a pot, so it's about finding the right tree and uh, I've made some recommendations uh, in the book. And do these containers stay in place or do they perform a kind of botanic ballet as you move them round from season (laughs) to season? I love that expression, botanic ballet. it's not i'm not very elegant when i'm dragging them around it doesn't look like a ballet i can tell you with my bad back and trying to drag huge terracotta pots around uh, i do shuffle them around a bit i mean i actually find it brings me quite a bit of pleasure to rearrange the display but you know when you get bored of looking at a herbaceous border you dig things up split them move them around and that's similar but yeah you can obviously refresh the display i mean i do cheat with my pots a bit so the big plants at the back they're raised up on all manner of props, so some old bits of furniture, so some old chairs, upturned buckets. The plants that are at the back, they're in big old black plastic pots. And that's useful in that obviously plastic pots don't dry out so quick. Because they're black and they're at the back, they kind of disappear, you don't see them. 
And I'm not going to spend £50 on a huge terracotta pot to go right at the back by the fence that I don't see. And the plants are kind of tiered down, so the smallest are at the front. And I've got about five layers of pots, and they're all raised at different heights. But the pots you see most are the ones at the front. So those I do have all in terracotta. I love terracotta pots. I think they're quite timeless. Certainly at the back, I've gone with really quite basic pots. And, and that's fine. You don't really see them. In your book, you talk about pansies and petunias as being good plants for colour pretty quickly. Well, you can buy them in the flower, so it's instant colour. Are there any other things that you have favourites in this line? Yeah, so I've talked about, um, and these can be good for open ground or pots through the summer months, cosmos, amaranthus, nicotiana, nasturtiums, nigella, uh, cleome, if you've got plenty of sun and heat. Bedding plants are an interesting one because you might think, oh, you know, petunias, they're not for me. In the book, we've done some winter bedding and we've just chosen one type of bedding plant per crate. And I've used some old packing crates lined with an old jumper and just done blocks of those colours. Everyone has different tastes, but there is something uplifting about flowering plants in the winter. And winter bedding can do that for you quickly and easily. And you can do it one weekend. You know, it changes the feel of the space quickly. Yeah. And you also mentioned growing food in pots. Is there anything that you grow in your garden to add to your table? There is. I grow herbs mainly because I do love to cook and I wouldn't be without fresh herbs. So normally in the spring, I replenish some of the stocks and have them. And we have sash windows in the kitchen and I have them on the outside windowsill so I can slide up the sash window and steal from them and then use it in the kitchen. You're a keen vegetable grower guy and, you know, they... The probably the most difficult situation is deep, deep shade if you're in a very, very shady space. In a sunny space, there is quite a lot available to you. And again, it comes back to decent quality compost and a decent rooting space. So either, you know, a deep planter or decent sized pots. And again, there's vegetables and, and fruits that can be available to you in that situation. You, know, you can keep a blueberry in a pot for years if it's well fed and watered and, and will fruit for you. So, Matt, we've looked at quick fixes and how they can be useful for short-term rentals. But what about if you're in the luckier position of having a longer-term rental and you want to plan for some years ahead? What do you suggest? I think it's good to look at herbaceous perennials because they do bulk up surprisingly quickly. So you can have, you can have a lot of gardening fun with that. You can you know, come up with a scheme and experiment try get a lot of pleasure from it bring up flowers into the house from the perennials but then you can lift and divide them before you go leave some behind take some with you it's really worth it I mean you're you can buy a handful of plants and by the time you come to leave you can divide them up and be taking away loads of material for your new garden and leaving a bit behind I mean you're almost using it like a, a bulking up nursery so if you've got soil there just take advantage of it for sure I think have a, an experiment with water, play with water, because water is so good for bringing wildlife into a garden. It's so great for the birds. And then if you can, try and plant a tree, try and plant a small tree in the space that you can hopefully leave behind. And um, one of the things you say that you'd make great play on, which is very important, is keeping their landlord in the loop. I thought those were particularly useful. And how should gardeners start up a conversation with their landlord? I think it's about always having some kind of rapport. People don't like surprises. You know, it's a fine line. You don't need to, uh, you know, if you ask permission for every single thing, you'll probably be quite annoying to your landlord. But I think for them to know that you've got a positive intention, that you want to look after the outdoor space, 
surely can only be good news. The book is not pointing to extreme things like digging a pond or knocking down walls. And, you know, a landlord's probably not going to want that level of change. But, I mean, with my landlord, I started by sending her a few photos of what I'd done when I tidied up the garden and how I'd improved it. And then she could see, OK, I am. I'm not just going with a wish list. I went in and said, this is how it was. This is how it looks now. This is what I've done with it. Obviously, she was delighted. And then my next question was, OK, now can you replace the fence, please? Because it's falling down. And obviously, that conversation went down a lot better than I think if I just sent a whingy email when we first moved in saying, here are all the problems. And one of the things you say in the book, you put forward the argument that the environment and well-being is particularly good motivation for people who want to take the plunge and grow in a rented space. How do you see that? So, I mean, we know as keen gardeners, you know, it makes you feel good. It's, it's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. So if you're in a rented place and you think, well, gardening's not for me right now, I'll wait till I own a garden, you're losing out on that. Because even though my garden's tiny and I go out and I water the pots, I rearrange them, I, I do a little bit of gardening where there's a tiny border, I know how much better I feel after that. So there's that. But then the other part, the nature part and environmental part, everyone's banging on about the climate crisis and goodness me, we need to be, it's a concern. But the best one of the best things we can be doing is planting a tree. So it's fine to go and glue yourself to the M25 roundabout, but what about your green space outside? Have you planted a tree? Have you lifted a paving stone? Is there greenery and plants around your own space? And this notion I think of, well, I don't want to commit anything to the ground because I'll move one day. You can pick up a tree for 20 quid. People spend more on a pair of trainers. So, you know, the right tree in the right place, and I believe there is a right tree for every space, it looks, it's magnificent. That whole notion of needing to strip everything out when you leave a property, I think just have a bit of kindness for nature and for future tenants. Well, this has been a fantastic talk. I think the things that have really made an impression on me is to be playful, to arrange your plants like a kind of theatre, to cram stuff in and uh, use big containers. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for talking to me on it. It's good fun. See you up with you soon, I'm sure. I'm sure you will. Well, there's loads to be thinking about there, and there's loads more in Matt's book, How to Garden When You Rent. You can find information and where you can get it in our show notes. You can also visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast for more. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit 
cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 